So what we have in Matthew, in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus addressing a subject that I, I fear uh, many Christians have never truly contemplated, never thought through. I don't want to rush through this this Sunday. I want to come back next Sunday as well. It's not part of our plan, but I believe it's, it is part of the Lord's plan that we would slow down here in this text for just four verses and really let God speak to us. Today what I want to do is give you uh, more of an overview of this part of the discourse that Jesus is speaking. We've begun a journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first of five discourses that Jesus speaks in the book of Matthew. In this discourse, Jesus teaches about the benefits of our great salvation. He never refers to salvation in our text, but he's going to lay out for us the mechanics behind the great salvation. As subjects of the kingdom of heaven, we need to stop and consider how the grace of God has placed us in a very unique relationship with the king. You have a unique relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, if you are saved, if you're born again. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian church this. If you want to turn, feel free. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll pick it up at verse 3. Go ahead and turn, if you will. Ephesians 1, 3. It says, Blessed be the God be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at this now, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now what tense is he speaking? He's not speaking future tense. That somewhere out in the future you're going to have heavenly blessings. He's saying right here, right now, you can have the blessings of God. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So these heavenly blessings belong only to the children of God who have come by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the greatest blessings of our citizenship here on this earth of heaven, so you're part of, you already are receiving the blessings of heaven on earth if you're saved. And one of the greatest blessings is obtaining the righteousness of God. Can you even fathom that? The reason I ask is because I can't. That I have, through Christ, obtained the righteousness of God. I want you to think about that. Christ in the flesh died for the sins of humanity so that those who believe by faith can be filled with the Spirit and then they can enjoy the benefits of God's kingdom right here, right now on this earth. This is what our Lord has been teaching us throughout chapter 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. That as God's people, our identity is found in Him. That the Beatitudes reveal the right attitudes that brings happiness 
even in this world? And then Jesus described how we are to live among a rotting, decaying uh, world that is, uh, that's filled with darkness. That is that we would be salt and light. So we, we've already learned this much, that we are unique, we're different from the world on this earth as believers. We are aliens to this world, but this is the world that God's put us in for a unique purpose, to declare his glory by you and I identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ, because Christ is in us. Now in verse 17 through 20, the text for the day, our, our king teaches us about his righteousness and its effect on our lives. Church, I'm profoundly humbled to share with you today the mechanism behind what Christ has freely given us simply by placing our faith in him. Unless Christ becomes, listen, unless Christ becomes our righteousness, you and I have no hope before Almighty God. The believer doesn't stand in victory over sin because of his own merits or his own accomplishments. The believer can only stand victorious in this life by faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. Apart from him, we do not possess righteousness. Well, we do. And God described our righteousness in Isaiah where he said, your righteousness is filthy rags in his sight. We would never stand before a holy God based on our righteousness, based on our good works, based on our popularity, based on our position in the community. I'm telling you right now, the best person in the world is unrighteous in the eyes of God. The believer doesn't stand in victory over sin because of his own merits. He stands in the righteousness of Christ. And because of the work of righteousness that Christ exemplified on the cross, God only sees his righteousness in us who are saved. By faith in the work of Christ, we become the righteousness of God. You don't believe it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul said, For our sake, not for his, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's right there in the text. This is not my opinion. This is not my idea. This is what the Bible teaches us. Christ, listen, let me clarify theologically who Jesus Christ is, what Christ did, and his identity on the cross, because this all plays into our understanding of God's righteousness in us, okay? Get this, Christ was never a sinner. He didn't die a sinner. He was treated as if he was a sinner. Christ was absolutely perfect and holy hanging on the cross. But God the Father treated him as if he was a sinner. If I can put it this way to you, from womb to tomb, Jesus Christ was pure righteousness. He's always been righteous. Understanding this simple truth about Christ allows the believer who have not yet made, listen, who have not yet made, uh, been made righteous by God, listen, it treated, we're treated as if we are righteous. Even though we don't possess that righteousness in ourselves. 
but through Christ we do. See, he was treated as if we were, uh, he was treated as if he were a sinner, so that by faith we could be treated as if we were righteous. He bore our sins so that we could bear his righteousness. God treated his son as if he committed the believer's sins and treats believers as if they did not only do the righteous deeds of the sinless son of God, but they lived them out perfectly. So God sees you <laughs> as perfect and pure as he sees the son because the son became to the father. He saw the son on the cross representing our sins. Let's just take a moment to clarify how this single act of Christ will affect your life as a believer. Uh, just think about this for a moment. Although every person is born into this world, not every person is born again. To be born once is to be born physically. To be born again is to be born spiritually. The difference is the work of regeneration done by the Holy Spirit. Once you've been born again the second time, you're no longer just a physical being with a soul. You now have a regenerated spirit. It changes everything. Let me put it to you this way. Before Christ saved you or redeemed you, you were a physical being that had a soul and an unregenerate spirit. But, as your, but at your conversion, you became a spirit being that has a soul and lives in a body. Here's the difference between a saved and unsaved person. An unsaved person is a physical being with an unregenerate spirit. A Christian, true believer is a spiritual being who lives in a body. In the first one, you emphasize the body, the flesh. That's why the Bible talks about don't walk in the flesh. Why? Because you've been redeemed from the flesh. Walk in the spirit. And so it's as different as this. Worldly life is physical being with a soul and an unregenerate spirit. Kingdom life is a spiritual being with a soul living in a physical body. You live differently. You're not just led around by your physical being any longer. Now I'm led by the Spirit of God. But because I still have a physical being, I'm still a physical being on this, on this earth, I'm going to fall short. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to sin. But God doesn't see me as a physical being first and foremost. He sees me as regenerated by Christ. He sees righteousness covering me. Some of us have never understood that. We fall short in something. We, we, we have shame and guilt just, just pounding us. And we, we fail to see how God the Father looks at us. You've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Just as if the Father never saw your sin to begin with. When he looks at you, he doesn't see just a physical being that is a sinner. He looks at you and sees a spiritual being made alive through Jesus Christ. One is dead to Christ, the other is alive in Christ. If you're born once, you're a physical being with a soul. That's all you are, and you're destined for an eternity in hell. I don't say that because I just think that's awesome and that I want people to go, never. And neither does the Father. 
God desires, God desires people to go to heaven. He does not desire that people that he created go to hell. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, listen, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should have, uh, should repent and be saved. What God offers the world is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the key to Christian living on the other side of, or on this side of eternity is righteousness. Understanding. To live the Christian life on this side of eternity, you have to understand the righteousness that has been given you. This is the focus of Jesus' teaching in our text today. And it will remain as, uh, remain as a theme throughout the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. So today we're learning about the righteousness that can only be found in Christian living. You ready? Let's go. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless or until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's first recognize that when Jesus spoke these words, he had not yet become, he had not yet become the atonement for our sins on the cross. He's speaking in the future tense here. So the disciples are thinking about a physical kingdom right here on earth, okay, that Christ will establish. When Jesus is speaking about a spiritual kingdom that we can have once he dies on the cross, we can enter into it. And then down the road, further on out, yeah, there is going to be a physical kingdom that Christ will come and establish. Luke 17, 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, here's how Jesus answered the Pharisees. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming, future tense, in ways that can be observed physically. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I am here with you. I am Jesus. I am the king. And I am here right now. The kingdom of God is with you. And future tense, when I die on the cross, I will be in you. The kingdom of heaven is in us. It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. So I want you to see this. It's so important that we understand now let's look at some general principles that Christ is teaching in our text. First of all, I'm just laying the groundwork for next week, quite honestly. Because when, if we can grasp these principles that we're going to share today and the general observations from the text, it's going to really take us into a deeper study next week. We're going to mine the depths on this thing. We won't hit the bottom, but we're going to pull up some nuggets next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. But let's get these observations out, okay? So here it is. Let's talk about some general principles first of all verse 17 again do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets you can underline or circle law and the prophets law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them circle the word fulfill 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. First of all, Jesus is telling us in this text that everything that he will teach while he is on the earth, everything that he, uh, uh, every principle he shares, every example that he lays, every word that comes from his mouth, listen to me, everything is in absolute harmony with the Old Testament. Everything. Because that's where you find the law. For truly I say to you, not until heaven and earth pass away will this law pass away. It's going to be accomplished. Okay? So first of all, he's telling us that everything he will teach is in absolute harmony with the entire teaching of the Old Testament. There's nothing in his teaching that contradicts the Old Testament scripture in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Verse 19. Let's look at the next principle that he teaches. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the second principle taught. Jesus tells us that his teaching is in complete harmony with the Old Testament. And his teaching, number two, is in complete disharmony with the Pharisees and the scribes. Now we're talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Only once has he met with a large crowd of people where he's performed some miracles and done some healing. And many of those people have followed him up on the mountain where he is sitting with his disciples as he gives this teaching. This is the very beginning of his earthly ministry. And right out of the gate, Jesus calls out the Pharisees. What we just learned from Jesus' teaching explains why he was under constant criticism and antagonism throughout his ministry as recorded in the four Gospels. One more thing. If you think that Jesus only spoke positively and said what was encouraging, then you might want to think again. He was not content with only making positive statements, only sharing his doctrines. Our Lord made negative statements. He called out false teachings and false teachers. Jesus was never content to only state the good. He also criticized the bad. I'm bringing this point out because we're living in a time here on this earth right now where the church has been so influenced by political correctness, which goes against, by the way, the Bible. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. But speak it! That's not politically correct. If you read verse uh, 19 and 20 in our text, Jesus is not being very politically correct, is he? And many people don't want Jesus to be that way. They don't want to see him that way. So they create their own Jesus who's just loving and compassionate and merciful to everybody all the time. And that's not Jesus of the Bible. Because of the influence of worldly uh, uh, culture, many Christians today don't want to hear anything negative. I just want the positive. We've become the fluff generation. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We want everybody to like us. Let's not say anything that might ruffle feathers or make people uncomfortable. There are churches that don't say anything that makes people uncomfortable. 
What are you saying? What is, what's left? To be saved, you have to be made uncomfortable. Am I right or wrong in that? You can't get saved if you don't think you're a sinner. And to call out sin is to make people uncomfortable. But by calling out sin, you lead people to salvation. Well, we don't have to speak negatively towards what others believe, Pastor Greg. Let's just talk about the things we agree on. As if unity is the, the premier doctrine in the Bible. It is not. That's what ecumenicalism does. It lifts up unity to the point that you've got the Jewish rabbi and you've got the Unitarian, what he calls himself, pastor, who doesn't even believe Jesus is the Son of God, working with the Christians as if they're all one. It's ridiculous. And I'm not calling those people out because I think that I hate them and I don't want them, I want them to be saved. But the only way to help somebody who's lost is to share the truth so Christ can save them. That's real love. To just go along with what they believe and it's not a big deal. Let's just, let's have a unity service at Easter morning sunrise. Let's have a unity. And you don't even know what they believe. Oh my goodness, God help us. One of my friends in town, he's a pastor, he was at a unity service. They were invited to participate, and this new pastor had come to town, and they were going to let him preach. They didn't know anything about the guy. And he's in one of the big churches in town, and so they said, yeah, you, you preached. He gets up, and he, this is a resurrection Sunday morning, and he preaches a message and says, it's not important that Jesus be raised bodily. That's what he said. My pastor friend said, Greg, I'm telling you, it took everything within me not to get up and walk off that platform in front of all those people. I said, you should have. I got on him. You should have. You should have stood up and done this and walked off that platform. That's heresy. We're not in unity with those folks. They're still lost. They need the love of God. They need the gospel. They need us to love them with the truth. They don't need us to play along with their fake game. And yet I see so many Christians who are so concerned, oh, please don't say something that, you know, my friend came today, oh, I hope you don't say. <laughs> well, you know me. <laughs> Hello. That should be for all of us. We're not going to say it with, you know, obnoxiously. We're not saying it to, to be mean. It's not personal. We're just speaking truth. Lovingly. If someone doesn't speak the truth, we all fall into a pit. What's interesting is the fact that the Pharisees and scribes were the intellectual and moral leaders of Israel in that day. They were the guys that the, that the nation looked to. They started out in the Old Testament as a really good bunch of guys. Their whole focus in the Old Testament was to preserve and, and keep safe the sacred writings of the text. That's a good thing. But over time, they became puffed up in what they were doing, and they began to, pride took over, now they began to, to expound on the law and write their own laws. But in their own wicked hearts, they were writing righteous law, righteous laws, that were not righteous at all. They were leading Israel astray. 
And so Jesus comes in his first time sitting down, his first discourse of five discourses in the whole Gospel of Matthew, and he calls them out. See, if, if, you, if you're here and you're thinking, well, you know, it's, it's just not right. It's, we need to respect people. You, 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 don't, you wouldn't want Jesus hanging out with you for very long. You wouldn't a moment, you know, have a meal where it's all nice and everything's good, but then walk around with him for a little while, and you'll find yourself fading away because he's going to be honest. He's going to be truthful. Let's just focus on the things we agree on, not talk about the things that separate us. Friends, I want to tell you something about that line of thinking. It's no wonder cults thrive in the world today. Political correctness has crippled the church's responsibility to contend for the faith. Instead, we only are interested today in fertilizing a bunch of weeds. There are false teachers all around us, and we have a responsibility not only to voice the truth, but call out the error so that the sheep aren't led away and eaten by wolves. How else will a sheep know that, it's, that, there, that there's a wolf in its midst unless the shepherd pays close attention and blows the whistle on the wolf? Jesus even warned his disciples of this very thing later in the Sermon on the Mount. We get to chapter 7, and Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who came to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's referring to the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Now let's try to get a picture as Jesus is addressing his disciples in this crowd that's gathered. Again, when he spoke against the Pharisees, it was like lightning to a powder keg. Here we have the Pharisees who were highly respected in the nation, but suddenly a man shows up disrespecting their authority. Who is this guy? The Pharisees would spend all day expounding on the law. Jesus didn't do that. Not the way they did it. The Pharisees would spend all day uh, telling you what you cannot do and telling you what you can do based on human regulations. Jesus spent all day preaching and practicing this extraordinary doctrine of grace and love. Added to that is his questionable relationship with the publicans and the sinners. He even ate with them. This, this went against everything that the Pharisees had taught the people regarding the law. They, they taught the people that even if you, if you walk by a sinner, don't even touch him, don't let him touch you. To a rabbi to touch, or to a priest to touch uh, a sinner, you're unclean now for seven days. And now all of a sudden, you know, so here you are, you're better than. The Pharisees walking around with their robes, their tassels, their phylacteries. They're walking around like this, chest out. I can't do it with my big belly, but they, they would walk around <laughs> and act like they were really something. People would walk by, and if somebody got too close... <laughs> Here's Jesus walking in ordinary clothes, walking right up to a prostitute and having a conversation and then saying, hey, I'm going to this guy's house today for lunch. Why don't you come join us? That infuriated them. Added to that is his questionable relationship with his disciples. <laughs> Who are these guys? This Jesus thinks he's so smart, but he hangs out with these idiots. These guys are a bunch of fishermen. They stink and they smell. Who, who are they? They're not trained men. 
They're not from, they're not from the, 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 the university. These guys grew up in Galilee. Come on. So questions began to arise because of his teachings and his practices, because they were so opposite of the religious leaders. Does this new teacher not believe in the Holy Scripture? Why does he challenge the Pharisees, scribes, and religious leaders? Aren't they the professional interpreters of the law of God for us? Is, is this Jesus, is his message to do away with the law? Is he turning his back to the holy writings of God given to us by the law and the prophets? I mean, who is this guy? So that's the introduction, this very introduction of the discourse. Jesus lays out and says, I know that some of you are thinking these things, and that as I go forward in my ministry, you will definitely think them. And so I'm going to address them right here and right now. He establishes exactly where he's coming from in regard to the law and to, the, and to righteousness. And he connects the dots to God's message of grace and love. In just four verses, Jesus leaves no stone unturned. One more observation of the text. It reveals the opposite response that Jesus knew he would get through his life and teaching. It's interesting to observe how heresies cancel out one another. The one side are the super righteous who push their legalism. On the other side, you've got the super free in grace who don't even want you to mention the word law. Because we're set free from that. You've got both extremes. And Christ comes in and establishes you're both wrong. On one hand, you have the Pharisees steeped in the law, pushing legalism like a drug for masses. On the other hand, you've got these people who take the view that Christ abolished the law completely, thereby introducing grace that replaces the law. How many of you have believed that? How many of you have heard that? That the grace of God cancels the law. You'll hear people say, the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Christ, therefore the Christian has nothing to do with the law. They'll even argue, don't ever speak words of the law. Don't talk about the law. Oh, you're a law preacher. You're a lawgiver. They'll argue that the Bible says that we're under grace, therefore we should never mention it, the law. Well, our Lord answers both at the same time in verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 17 and 18. By speaking directly to his relationship to the law, and the prophets. He talks about the fact that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. By the way, the law, just, just terms, look, using terms that we'll use for next week as well, general terms we need to know. Law, when it says law uh, in this text, it's speaking of general preferences uh, of the entire Old Testament. So all the references that you see in the Old Testament, that's what Jesus is referring to here. When he says law in this text, he's speaking of the entire Old Testament, holy, all of it, okay? In the future, as he speaks of law, he's going to speak specifically of one of the three aspects of the Old Testament law, which is the moral law. But today, he's covering the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. He's covering all of it in this text. And, and so... Uh, just to explain that to you. The moral law. What is the moral law? There's three elements to the law of the Old Testament, okay? First is the moral law. What is that? That's the Ten Commandments. So write that down. The Ten Commandments are the moral law, the moral principles that were laid down. And by the way, those, those Ten Commandments, the moral laws that are laid down, are laid down forever. 
they're permanent. Okay? There's never been a lift on, on murder, okay? Killing people, uh, murdering them. All right? That's still in effect. Why? Because that moral law still stands. All right? Now, the second is the judicial. That's the legislative law. That's, that teaches us how Israel, back in that day, in that time, in that season, how Israel was to treat one another. You have the judicial laws. And that's how they would judge the people, based on those laws. And then the third is the ceremonial laws. And, of course, you know what that is. That's the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Specific laws in offering sacrifice to God. Specific law in burnt offerings. So what Jesus is referring to, again, is everything that the law teaches about life, conduct, behavior. Now, as we move forward, it's going to be different. He'll talk just about the moral law. But right now, he's covering all of it. And the reason he's covering all of it is because he's trying to establish for the people that I am the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, everything. Uh, what is meant by the prophets? Let me share that with you. It refers to all that we have in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. The prophets both taught the law and they, they uh, interpreted the law. Okay, They warned the nation uh, by the law of God over and over. They would give the oracles of woe to the nation, warning them of the law of God. Okay, and, 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 But they did more than that. They also foretold of the Messiah to come. So the prophets had a significant role in the Old Testament scriptures. And finally we have to understand the word fulfill. Let's, let's look at that for a second. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. I think we get a little confused in what he meant by that. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament only covers the teachings up to a certain point, and then Jesus comes and takes it over and takes it further. If that's the picture you have of the Old Testament, you really don't understand the Old Testament the way God has given it to us. It's not like up to a certain point this is the truth, and now Jesus is going to give us more truth. He's going to expand on that truth. He's going to make it even more than it was in the Old Testament. That's, that's a wrong view completely. The real meaning of the word fulfill is to carry out. So you have the Old Testament. Listen, by the way, the Old Testament is all about God's holiness, God's justice. Listen, God's righteousness, God's grace, and God's love. It's all through the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't come to expand and make it more than it was. He comes to fulfill, to carry out all, of the old, all that the Old Testament teaches. You see the difference? So he's not doing something new. He is doing something better because he's letting us see it in person. He's living it in front of us, right? And then we, through him, get to live it, which was kind of cool, through him, because we could never live up to the law either. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament only covers the teachings up to a certain point and then Jesus takes over. It means that he carries it out. He's going to carry out what was stated in the Law and the Prophets. It's not something in addition to or attached to the Law and the Prophets. He's going to carry out everything that the Law and the Prophets said. So what is Jesus saying to us in verse 17 and 18? Two things, I'm closing. One, God's law is absolute and unchangeable. 
That's just it. God's law is absolute and unchangeable. You can't even slightly modify God's law. You and I have no part in touching the law of God. It is what it is as God has given it. It demands our acceptance, and its demands are permanent, believe me. They can never be, re be reduced, they can never be diminished until heaven and earth pass away. The only part of the law of the Old Testament that is no longer in place for us is the judicial laws which were specifically given to Israel and the ceremonial laws which were to be practiced by Israel. But the moral law is still very much in place and will always be in place. In fact, he goes further. He says, uh, look what he says here to talk about how permanent. He says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's going to accomplish all of it. There's nothing smaller uh, and, uh, than an iota and a dot in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the smallest point and the smallest letter. Heaven and earth will not pass away until every minute detail shall be absolutely and completely carried out through Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the first thing that you want to take away with today is that you can trust the Old Testament because Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And secondly, Jesus came to carry out the law and the prophets in perfect obedience. In fact, everything that is in the law and the prophets culminates in Christ. He is the fulfillment of them. This is a magnificent claim that Jesus made. Here's what Jesus is saying. I am affirming all of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that every part of the Old Testament is from God. I'm affirming it. You say, okay, what does that mean for me? Well, think about how many times you've heard or you have said, well, I love the New Testament, but I'm not too big on that Old Testament. There's parts of that Old Testament I just don't like. I don't even read them. That is an assault against the Word of God. And let me take it a step further. It's assault, an assault against Jesus Christ. Because he said every part of it, down to the dot and the iota, are going to be, of the Old Testament, is going to be fulfilled in me. He believed in all of it. When you have Christians who say, well, I'm just, I'm about the Gospels. That's what I'm about. Or I'm, I'm a New Testament Christian. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're, you're revealing how foolish that that statement's so foolish to think that you're a new testament christian when the whole new testament is the, the carry out of the old testament you ought to be for both some of you won't read the old testament i only read the new testament well today start reading the old testament and the parts that are difficult just realize you don't understand them and if you understand them, then they're a little less difficult, still difficult, but it makes sense because you see Christ in them. Some of us read things on a surface value, and we see what's, what it says, and we walk away. I don't want no more, any part of that anymore. Look at your Bible. You open it up. You can just hold it to the side. And one part of it's brown. The edges are brown because you've been in that. And then the whole other section's white, brand new. You go to the New Testament, and man, the pages just flutter. You know, you got all these. You go to the Old Testament, you got to pull them apart. Let me see. 
Let's see. Let's see what that one is. That shows how far, church, we, the people of God, who've been set free by Christ, who are now in the kingdom of God, have been removed from understanding the fullness of God's word. We've even picking and we've picked and chosen what we want. We're consumers. We're consumers in America. That's a good thing. I like free enterprise myself. But you're not a, you're not into free enterprise in the, in the Bible. You got to take all of it. Amen. All of it. The moment you begin to question certain parts of the Bible, you no longer have an authoritative inspired word of God. To question the authority of the Old Testament is to question the authority of the Son of the living God. Listen, you can't say, well, I'm not sure about that creation thing. Jesus was. He was sure of it. So you're going to believe man over God? Christians who start playing around with creation, well, here's what I, here, here's what I believe about that. <laughs> So what do you believe about sin? Because that comes up right after creation. You're going to start playing with sin too? Make it something different than it is? I came out of a movement growing up where you get this second work of grace in your life and you don't sin anymore. That's what they taught. Literally, older people that I was a kid, I can remember them saying to me, well, you know, before I had the second work of grace, before sanctification uh, took place in my life, as if sanctification is an event like salvation. They'd say, well, you know, um, before, you know, I used to sin, but now, thank God, I'm no longer a sinner. I don't have it. I don't, I don't sin anymore. I go, well, I know you're not called a sinner. You're called a saint by God. He sees righteousness in you. But you do fall short every day. You do sin every No, no, no. You, you sin? Really? That's pharisaical. To remove sin in your idea of righteousness so that you don't have to feel guilt anymore for what you've done. That's what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, look, the reality is, if you think for a second that you're going to get off with God, the Father, by listening to these knuckleheads tell you that you're not a sinner, if you'll just do this, this, and this, you've got another thing coming. I'm telling you that I'm the full, first of all, the entire Old Testament is in harmony with everything I'm saying. And secondly, I'm going I'm to obey it while I'm on this earth perfectly. And then I'm going to go across, and I'm, God's going to look at me as if I'm you, a sinner. And because you put your faith in me as a sinner, he's going to look at you as if you're righteous like me. That's a pretty good exchange. Who doesn't want that? To walk out of this room today and have zero guilt over past sin. To know that today you are in the arms of God. You have been covered by the righteousness of Christ. That you are a saint in his eyes. Justified by faith. Just as if you never sinned. That's how he sees you. Let's close with prayer.